Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is Soundtrack Your Life. We'd like to thank you for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. If you'd like to support us financially, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash SoundtrackCast. Today, Brandis and I are being joined by Colin from Free With This Month's Issue. Um, it's a podcast which releases an episode every month. They can be found on Instagram at Free With This Month's Issue and on Twitter at This Month's Issue. So welcome, Colin. Why don't you uh, tell our listeners about Free With This Month's Issue? Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, uh, so Free With This Month's Issue is a podcast where me and my co-host Ian, plus a different guest each month, um, listen to a different um, old free CD from music magazines. Like In the UK, we used to get loads of these. I don't think they were as much of a thing in America, but... um, Basically, we used to get a, a free sort of sampler compilation CD every now and again with magazines like Kerrang! and Q and Enemy and Melody Maker. And uh, it's where we heard a lot of the music that we grew up listening to because we didn't get it played on the radio so much. So, uh, yeah, basically each each month we sort of listen to them and the best episodes are the ones where there's a, a nice mixture of songs that have held up well and songs that have aged horribly. So, uh, you know, we've got delights and horrors on the CD to uh, sort of go through and uh, rip into pieces, basically. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, today we're going to talk about the soundtrack to the 1994 Alex Proyas film, The Crow. Yes. So uh, why would you like to talk about The Crow today? Well, I was amazed nobody else had ever picked it because... It's the best soundtrack album of all time, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, a lot of people my age, I'm 40 now, um, so a lot of people around my age seem to agree. When it's there was, um, there's a Facebook um, group that I'm in where it does like uh, polls of the best album of all time. And the only soundtrack that they got in there was The Crow. And loads of people were up, you know, there were people that didn't know the album so well going, well, this is a compilation album. Why is this in there? And it's like, well, most of the songs were recorded specifically for the album, and it's it's just amazing. <laughs> it's you know one of it. It introduced me to loads of bands that I ended up absolutely loving. Um, it's got my favorite band, uh, my favorite song by my favorite band ever, uh, which isn't available anywhere else apart from on a B sides compilation box set. And uh, yeah, it's just utterly fantastic as a uh, sort of young teenage uh, goth kid or metalhead, uh, this CD was essential. And the, the movie as well. It's, you know, me, me and all my friends growing up absolutely loved this film and uh, would watch it repeatedly throughout the late 90s. Yeah, I never bought the soundtrack, but I remember having really good memories of the soundtrack, like the singles yeah. that came off of it. I remember really liking it. Um, I'm not like a huge Stone Temple Pilots fan, but I was like, oh, this is a really good song. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, everything that I remember hearing, I was like, oh, this is really good. And I wouldn't really consider myself like a goth person other than like really liking like, you know, The Cure and, 
you know, later yeah. in my life, Joy Division. But I feel like um, the bands that you all know who are on the soundtrack, like I feel like they all brought like pretty, really solid tracks. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and yeah, it, it's a, a a film that we were all absolutely obsessed with at school. There was a um, I, I grew up in a sort of somewhere between a village and a town um, called Polesworth. And uh, basically, we'd uh, on the way home from school, halfway home, there was a um, this little tiny video shop called uh, Video Scene Two. You know, we we didn't have like a big blockbuster or anything like that. And we used to pop in there on the way home, and they used to sell all the old posters that they'd finished with. Um, and I had the um, advertising poster for The Crow bought from Video Scene Two uh, on my wall for probably about maybe seven or eight years. Yeah, this was definitely like a huge moment with uh, me in high school and my high school friends as well. Like, definitely, yeah, one of like the top movies. Like, you had The Matrix, you had Equilibrium, and you had The Crow. Those were probably like the top three <laughs> must watch, must talk about, must brag about. You being a fan, it's kind of like a status thing, right? <laughs> the, the leather trench coat movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, well, like, you know, you're not cool if you don't like these movies sort of situation. And... <laughs> oh, we weren't cool. We just, you know, <laughs> we, we were looking back on it, but nobody else thought we were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's all about state of mind, right? Like, you think you're yeah, cool, yeah. you're cool. Um, but yeah, no, like, I definitely remember that. And I remember having seen it a lot of times in that era of my life, like in high school, but I hadn't seen it since then and so i rewatched it and i was just like oh man this movie does not hold up <laughs> like they're just to like the memory that i have of it as you know like a kid growing up um but yeah it's unique because the soundtrack itself like if you take the soundtrack out of the movie um that obviously still holds up like you're saying like really great songs um a lot yeah. of the bands involved were huge fans of the comic book and that really shows um, in sort of their song selection and the fact that they re-recorded all of their songs, I'm guessing for budget reasons, to make this soundtrack happen on a lower um, budget. But in the film, um, I mean, again, it's like, you know, it's a product of its era. It's 1994. Um, it has that definite 90s cheesy, we're making a movie or are we making a music video situation happening. <laughs> And yeah. it's just interesting. The soundtrack by itself is great, but the mu the songs put into the movie are just a little bit of like a record scratch. Like they're not seamlessly like mixed into the film, and it's weird because it's just an interesting situation. Usually, if you have a really great soundtrack, it's used really well in the movie. Um, but I don't know. It's weird. It's like I did not like how these songs, no matter how much I love the songs and like the curation of them, I didn't like how they were used in the film, and so I have mixed feelings. But definitely. Me as a high schooler, me as, as a kid was like all about the movie, all about the music and the soundtracks, like was not thinking about, <laughs> you know, the stuff that I'm thinking <laughs> about now as an adult. <laughs> like, I don't remember how big the comic book was. I feel like it was kind of still, you know, an independent kind of more underground sort of thing where, you know, I kind of just knew like the major Marvel and DC players. So for me it was a huge surprise that they were able to get so many people, you know, that were big names to be on the soundtrack. Cause I kind of felt like it was, you know, a very like unproven sort of thing. You know, um, the person, one of the soundtrack supervisors also did the Batman forever soundtrack. And, you know, with Batman, yeah. it's like, yeah, sure. We're going to get you two and we're going to get 
you know, smashing pumpkins and, and all, you know, that makes sense because everyone knows Batman, but for this, uh, you know, kind of unknown comic book with an unknown lead actor who is only known as Bruce Lee's son at the time. You yeah. Know, it's crazy that you have the cure and stone temple pilots and nine inch nails and rage against the machine. Like there's a lot of huge names and that's why it debuted at number one on the billboard top 200 and sold yeah. almost 4 million copies. I think part of how the bands got involved with it was they were almost sort of summoned by uh, James O'Barr, who wrote the he wrote I think he wrote and illustrated the comic because he's the only credit on there um, on the version that I've got of it anyway. Um, so yeah, it, obviously not like you said not as well known as the the Marvel and DC stuff or even um, like Image Comics and stuff like Spawn. It it wasn't as well known as, but. I think the bands like um, The Cure and New Order um, will have known because their lyrics are referenced in the comic. So there's a the, the reason that um, Robert Smith was aware of it and why The Cure got involved was there is a, a page where the entire lyrics of uh, The Hanging Garden by The Cure are basically the text on that page. And originally, that's what they wanted um, in the film. And then um, Robert Smith said, no, I'll, I'll write you a new one, and uh, wrote Burn. And I'm really glad he did, because it's my favourite. I mean, the Cure are my favourite band, and it's my favourite song by The Cure. So uh, very glad he did that. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, that's what I was saying, like, with it really shows that these bands like really cared because it was an independent comic, you know, it didn't have yeah. the big money behind like with the Marvel DC situation, but it was almost like an underground immediate hit because I believe the comic was late eighties and this was 1994. So it hadn't even yeah. been out or around a long time, you know, to kind of have that sort of like, you know, oldie but goodie cult status. Behind yeah, it's, it. it's not going to be one that the, the bands had grown up with. It's one that they would have maybe read while they were on tour. Um, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I think it was eighty-eight or eighty-nine. I think you're right. Yeah, it just had this like instant like hit following, and unfortunately, sadly, um, it was influenced by like you know the creator's own personal tragedy. Um, his wife yeah. died, I believe, in like a drunk driving, um, like a drunk driver hit them, and she died, yeah. and so that's what like influenced it. So I'm I've never read the comic personally, but I'm guessing there's a lot of because it's based on personal tragedy than real story. There's a lot of really like intimate and real and raw feelings in there that probably yeah, it, resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. It, it, the comic's not amazing. Um, there are much, much better comics. It, it's, it's good source material. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can tell that they built on it a lot for, for the film, but um, yeah. So the, the difference in the main difference between the comic and the movie is the way that um, Eric and um, Shelley are, killed in the comic is um they're basically crashed into by um the the gang while they're just out messing about and then they murder them in the process of they've crashed and they're all drunk and messing about and stuff so they decide to kill them whereas in the uh, in the film they've actually got a bit more of a motive so it's they're they're clearing the house out because they need to clear this building because top dollar as who's the boss of the gang He's, uh, he's, he's like a sort of crime kingpin and he's, you know, sold the building and needs to get all the tenants out. So there's a bit more of a motive of it 
of for for why in the film. Yeah, yeah, fleshing that out a little bit. But yeah, like you said, it's great source material, and so it clearly resonated with the bands because, I mean, even though if you look at the metadata for like the soundtrack, it doesn't say that most of them are original songs or like bespoke re-recordings and covers. Some of the songs that are credited as you know like on other albums and used for this soundtrack were actually still written for it. Like, for example, um, I totally just like spaced. Oh, Jesus and Mary Chain's <laughs> Snake Driver. Like, if you look at yeah. it on this um, on It's the on the, the best of record, I think, that came out a couple of weeks before. But, yeah, it was written for, yeah. for The Crow. Exactly. So it's like that, even though it's not credited as like an original song, it is still was actually like an original song. And all of those yeah. bands were like re-recorded songs that they already had and like changed the title again. I'm guessing it was for budgetary reasons. And it's just insane because usually with soundtracks, you know, it's like there's a curation of music and bands, you know, like agree to like those music, those songs being used. But I would what like 75, 80 percent of the soundtrack is like specifically created for this movie. And I think that that speaks volumes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and they're nearly all, uh, you know, in, in quite a lot of cases, it's the best songs that the, the band ever did. Not in all cases, obviously, Nine Inch Nails have done. I mean, <laughs> Dead Souls is amazing, but they've got other amazing songs as well. But um, yeah. I, it's bands like, like the lesser bands on there, like For Love, Not Lisa and, uh, um, you know, Medicine, uh, they're definitely they're better songs from the other ones that I've listened to. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not going to investigate these that much further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Nine Inch Nails, but like you said, The Cure is your favourite band. Nine Inch Nails is my favourite band. And so, yeah. um, I mean, consequently of us doing this podcast, I've had Dead Soul stuck in my head all this morning. Thanks for that. Yeah. But <laughs> it's definitely... Um, Nine Inch Nails are about equal with uh, The Cure and Mogwai as my three favourite yeah. bands. Yeah, um, it, it's an interesting choice for them. I mean, like, they, you know, it's a good song and it shows up on the deluxe re release of Downward Spiral. And that's, yeah. you know, one of fans' favorite albums for sure. But for me, it always kind of stood out. Like, you can tell it's a cover. It fits with, um, you know, like Nine Inch Nails, but it's not, you can tell it's not a Nine Inch Nails song. Um, it's just a very different, like, sound for them. And so, you know, for me, you know, it's like I like Nine Inch Nails for a reason. And so it's, Never really stuck out as like one of my favorites of theirs. I I love it, but it's it got me into joy. It, it's one of the things that introduced me to Joy Division. My uh, my co-host Ian, um, me and him used to DJ at a club night um, that nobody ever used to turn up to. It was basically <laughs> a mo- Monday night in our local rock pub, and it was basically uh, me, him, and another guy DJing, and the other guy's brother playing pool, and that was everybody that was in there. Uh, <laughs> Unsurprisingly, we didn't get paid, but basically we could just listen to whatever music we liked over a big big PA system. But I can remember really vividly um, buying a substance, the um, new, uh, sorry, there's a new order substance and a Joy Division substance, the Joy Division version of substance, um, which is there. It's sort of a compilation-ish greatest hits, but not quite. It's got a lot of really early stuff on there, and it's that's got Dead Souls on it. And I can remember playing that to, to Ian and him going, well, it's just the same, but with not as good vocals, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love Ian Curtis's vocals as well, so uh, I didn't agree with him at the time, but I can see where he was coming from. <laughs> um, I'd been lucky enough to see Nine Inch Nails do it live as well, which was great. 
um, they when they played um, uh, Reading Festival in two thousand and seven, uh, they played this and Burn in the set list. So mm-hmm. they were basically, obviously, in a soundtracky kind of mood. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would have been pretty close to when um, Social Network came out, so maybe that was on Transmind. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember what year that was. I think it was... Oh, no, sorry. That's actually that's four years off. That was... Sorry. I'm, like, skipping over, like, four years there, so not yeah, quite. It, this would have been... Uh, this was year zero sort of era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah. they, they played loads of... Uh, like, Great Destroyer was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, the social network and all that stuff was like right after that. It's like when he was making that like shift. Yeah, it was while they were on sort of uh, hiatus, wasn't it? Yeah, but they like released um, Ghosts. And I think that that was kind of like a little bit of a bridge. I mean, it wasn't his first like, you know, original score, like sort of like situation, but it was definitely his first commercial original score. So I think that was a. That was a little bit of a hiatus and instrumental and like, oh, I should get back to scoring. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's interesting because um, Joy Division slash New Order was actually supposed to contribute a song to the soundtrack, but yes. it didn't work out. And so that's what led to Nine Inch Nails covering Dead Souls. But apparently Nine Inch Nails was also supposed to perform in the movie when you see the, um, the other band whose name is escaping me now. They're performing like in that sort of... Um, There's... So there's, there's two scenes you've got um my life with the thrill kill cult are in there yeah. towards the end and you've also got uh medicine playing there as well so weirdly you've got on the soundtrack album you've got time baby three by medicine which is the track that they did with it's just got robin guthrie on the credit but liz fraser's on there as well so it is the cocteau twins um joining them um but it's actually time baby two that they play on in the actual film, uh, mm-hmm. which is exactly the same song. It just doesn't have the Cocteau Twins on it, um, so isn't as good because Liz Fraser is amazing. Um, but, yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, the 90s was an absolutely brilliant time for movies to have just a scene where there's a rock band playing and there's just people in a club at some point and, uh, you know, you've got the, the band playing live because, like, I, I was – Trying to remember as many as I could, but you got a um, Cannibal Corpse in Ace Ventura: Pet Detective, uh, mm-hmm. L7 in Serial Mom, uh, White Zombie in Airheads, which is amazing, uh, Real Big Fish in Basketball, uh, Primus in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, uh, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones in Clueless, uh, The Offspring in Idle Hands, uh, where Dexter then gets his head, the top of his head cut off, and uh, Soundgarden and Alice in Chains in singles as well. So it's a nice 90s tradition that doesn't seem to happen anymore. Um, You know, people need to bring that back. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's scheduling and money and everyone's like, it's way easier to just pay an extra to look cool playing a guitar. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I bet you'd get get plenty of bands that would do it for just to have their song in there. you know, you would, yeah. that'd be, you know, if, you, if you're paying an extra, you've got to get someone to write the song, then people to mime it. Whereas if you've got the actual band that have written the song playing in there, they'll probably do that for free. For, <laughs> uh, you know, if they've already got the, the soundtrack money, they'll be probably quite happy to appear in the film. I would. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit of a boost, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was trying to imagine... 
you know, people aren't making music videos anymore, so it's like the next best thing. Yeah. Yeah, we're right. swinging back to that. Now we have, what is it, like a visual album or something? And I'm like, you mean a music video? You're like reinventing something that already exists. <laughs> well, that's when they do ones for every single song, which you used to get occasionally. Uh, the first Garbage record, they did videos for every song and put a v- uh, version out on VHS. I miss that. I miss just having like, uh, you know, a channel where you could just turn on and like watch music videos. It's the perfect sort of like <laughs> background. It's interesting. Well, Really have to you have, but it's you've got to search for them, and it's called YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> but I do that every, you know, every, every evening. I'll watch a load of music videos on on YouTube and just see what comes yeah. up next. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was trying to imagine why, how the not that the movie would be different, but just like in a parallel universe where Nine Inch Nails actually was like performing in that cameo. Yeah. Um, film and I was trying to feel how I would feel about it and I'm still not sure about it uh, no I, th- I think it would work well it wouldn't be as much for Parallel Universe as the original idea for the film um, have you heard about what the, um, rec- uh, the the movie studio's original pitch to James O'Barr was no okay. so originally when they came to James O'Barr and said okay we want the rights to the film uh, we want to make a musical starring Michael Jackson of the crow. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Slightly different tonally. Uh, a little bit. It's a little. <laughs> I mean, it could be amazing. That would not have aged well. <laughs> no, that would not have, have aged well for many reasons. But I just can't even picture that. <laughs> so, um, me, me, and Ian also do another podcast called We Dig Music, and we did an episode years ago on Michael Jackson, and one of the things that. I did for the research in that is I watched Moonwalker, uh, which was the the movie that he made in the late eighties, and it's completely insane. There's a section where he's being chased by a load of gangsters, so runs up an alley, turns into a car, and escapes. As in, like a transformer, Michael Jackson <laughs> becomes a car. <laughs> As one does, right? In the eighties, he could do anything. It, it, yeah. He had the budget to do that kind of thing, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think his video for Scream, the song that he did with his sister, yeah, I think it was like $7 million. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was the most expensive video at that point. I don't I think it's been surpassed since then, but yeah, it was ri- ridiculous. And that was not much later than The Crow, was it? That was, I think that was Maybe about 96, 97-ish. Yeah. Mainly because I I remember um, the same school friend that I used to watch The Crow with loads. Um, He had the Michael Jackson history, past, present and future record when it came out. You could either make The Crow for $23 million or you could make Michael Jackson's (laughs) screen video for seven. (laughs) I mean, less people got injured on the screen video as far as I'm aware. (laughs) I don't think uh, I don't think the scream video has inspired years of wrestling storylines. <laughs> I'm not much up on wrestling storylines, but I know that it was Sting, wasn't it, whose uh, makeup was totally ripped off from the Crow. Yep, trench coat, the makeup. Yeah, and then he would just pop. He would literally come down from the rafters <laughs> on like a on like a string. And then just right. like beat people with a baseball bat, and that would be the end of things. He didn't, you know, stab 
26 knives into somebody in alphabet in all of their organs in alphabetical order then <laughs> that was one of my favorite lines but i was like but how do you know it was in alphabetical order <laughs> <laughs> do you have a witness like <laughs> it, it, it's uh yeah it would involve a, a level of surgical knowledge that i don't think a rock star uh who lived in a loft apartment would have fairly certainly wasn't a trained surgeon well that, i mean the coroner is probably not going to go through all the work of like okay this stab wound was you know five minutes before this other stab wound and that's what i want to know all it's of not the stab right. wounds they're in alphabetical order Brandon had a ton of magical abilities when he was resurrected, you know, like when his character was resurrected. <laughs> he wasn't, you know, like a street fighter. He wasn't able to catch knives and throw knives. So I can I can believe that hand waving, but yeah, okay. how does know? You know what I mean? Like the time of death was somewhere in the middle of that. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's going to be, and, and also they said that within probably about three hours in actual time of when it had happened. Because it yeah. all takes place over one night, doesn't it? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a very quick autopsy. Yeah, but I really love that line, though. <laughs> yeah. That and when the uh, asshole detective is harassing the beat cop or whatever, and he's like, well, what do you call that? And points to the crow in the wall, and the cop <laughs> is like, call that blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the detective uh, – sorry, not the detective, the, uh, the beat cop played by – Winston Zeddemore from uh, Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. It's the yeah. only only non-Ghostbusters film I've ever seen him in. <laughs> <laughs> I had completely forgotten about that. Um, and so, yeah, when I rewatched it for this podcast, I was like, holy shit, he's in this. He's the beat cop. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Ernie Hudson, isn't it? My favorite line in the film is when um, Eric shows up at his apartment and he's in just like a a wife beater tank top and his boxers. <laughs> yeah. And Erica, you're still wearing your hat. <laughs> <laughs> it's because he's got to show, they've got to show that he's a cop. It's brilliant. Um, the, the other, my, I think probably my favourite line is the bit where um, it's towards the start and he says, it's when he's first seen um, Eric Draven, and he says something about, um, you know, uh, I've got to sit around here dealing with a fucking mime. And then uh, he disappears and he says, well, at least he didn't do that walking in the wind shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Which there's some really great lines and dialogue in this film that do hold up, even if a lot of the other filmmaking qualities do not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there are much worse films, such oh, as well, The Crow yeah. the Crow City of Angels. Uh, <laughs> the, the sequel is I... I don't know why I never watched it at the time, but last night I decided to do a double bill and watch both. And The Crow is, while yes, there are much better films uh, since then and before then, uh, there are a lot of films that I, I like a lot more, although I've still got obviously a lot of time for it. I only watched half of The Crow City of Angels. It's got, <laughs> it's got a, some brilliant stuff on the soundtrack, but it's such a bad film. It, I was really disappointed as well because it's directed by Tim Pope who um, basically was, he's done most of the Cures videos um, and right. it's like directed their, their live movies and stuff but obviously when it turns to him doing an action movie 
it's not so good. It's all filmed with like this really weird sort of yellow haze, uh, which I think is supposed to be like the smog in LA. It's the <laughs> City of Angels. Uh, but it, it didn't... I've been to LA and it wasn't all like somebody had put a smoke machine with yellow dye all Thank over you. the place. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's not that bad, guys. <laughs> it's, it was all right. I liked it. There was, there was some nice bits. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I mean, I know, again, we're talking about like the soundtrack here, but I can't not talk about the actual score. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because, like I said, the soundtrack as a standalone by itself, really amazing. When those songs are used in the movie, it's a little jarring because they're not, you know, sort of like mixed in well with the edit. But the score is like, what is happening? The tone of it does not match any of the scenes. When you have this like weird Hollywood jazz moments, these new age moments, when this really dramatic stuff is happening, and you're just like, I don't, I don't even follow what's happening right now. <laughs> there's, there's a, there's, there's one sort of theme bit that sort of. It's like a recurring thing that's all right, but yeah, the rest of it is—it's just sort of weird incidental music, isn't it? And they—they they actually put out a um, score album a few years ago on on vinyl, and I saw loads of people getting really excited about it. It was like, I don't know if they realised that it's not the soundtrack; it's the score. <laughs> it's not going to be what you're expecting here. I, I did get it on vinyl uh, for uh, Record Store Day about three or four years ago, I think it was. Um, so yeah, I've owned the the soundtrack album. Um, th- on yeah, I've I've owned it on cassette, CD, and vinyl. So uh, collected the full set there. Full set. <laughs> yeah, don't I don't think mean, it's I ever released know. on eight track eight track cartridge, and we didn't have those over very much anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know that the score is necessarily bad as a standalone either. I've never like listened to it in of itself. It just doesn't match the movie at all. It's very. Yeah. Weirdly, it's like whoever did the score was not watching the film and had not seen the film or read the script or read the comic when they were making that music. <laughs> well, what's funny is the guy who scored it, his name is Graham Ravel. Yeah. He is known for just doing movies that are like this. He does like a lot of horror and a lot of like dark action movies. So he's done Idle Hands and Tank Girl and yeah. Strange Days and a lot of movies that you would feel like would be... You know, these movies make sense as far as, like, sharing a composer. Like, oh, yeah, they probably have, like, the same sort of vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's weird that, like, people keep going back to him when, like, maybe this isn't, like, the most profound score that he's done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, again, like, we're looking through the lens of, like, modern day versus, you know, like, in the 90s, jazz yeah. and rage were, like, the thing. So maybe it was just such a popular, uh, you know, genre in that time that you didn't mind that it like didn't match the tone of the film. But watching it today, you're just like, wow, <laughs> the tone of the soundtrack totally matches. It just wasn't mixed in well with the editing, but the score is just like a totally its own thing. <laughs> I, I say I, I've never had any issues with how it's mixed in with the editing. The only the bits that bug me about all stuff that's edited for tv and film is when they cut bits of a line or bits of a song um which they do with uh, the cure uh, burn um mm-hmm. which is that's the scene where he's um sort of putting the makeup on for the first time and like becoming the crow uh, which actually isn't brandon lee um that was a bit that was shot after 
he died. Mm-hmm. So the bits in the mirror is a, a digital composite of his face from other scenes, and um, which is why it's shown in the only bit you see his face properly there is in um, a smashed mirror reflection because they could do it easier that way. But um, yeah, in that bit, there's a, a few bits where it skips like about three lines or something, and because I know the song so well, it's just like ah, and it. I whenever I hear a song in anything like on TV or, or a film and they skip bits like that. I always find it really jarring, um, but that's because I'm more of a, a music person than a film person, really. Yeah, no, I don't think that that's... There are very few situations where I feel like that's necessary, so I find that very jarring as well. Yeah. Um, but also, and I think it's in that scene or maybe a little bit earlier, they're playing a song and they're cutting in and out of the song even though it's not playing in the scene. It's just you know, for our benefit, but when they're cutting out to like the gang sort of like doing their thing, the music stops playing and it's like, well, but Brandon Lee's character is not listening to the music. So why are we cutting in and out of it (laughs) in this sort of like montage? um, It's, it's weird how they're like jumping in and out. And then it's like, they're not playing a song. And then all of a sudden the song like comes in very abruptly. Like it's not like it's faded in or it's not like it comes in when you're cutting from one scene to another, so it makes sense. It just kind of like appears, and I think is that the bit where it's um, is that the bit where he's running across the rooftops to dead souls? Because I, th- I think that does sort of just like burst in rather than than fading in or anything. But I don't yeah, think it swaps to other scenes. Yeah, so like the song right before that is where it just like it comes in immediately, and then like dead souls comes in immediately, and then I believe. The song after that, it was just like the use of three songs in a row was like, wow, I was not right. <laughs> here for how they introduced that song into the scene. Again, <laughs> it's like, the tone of the song totally matches what's happening. It's just how it's mixed yeah, definitely. In. Yeah. For me. I wonder how much that has to do with like how much they had to like reshoot and kind of reconfigure the movie because Brandon Lee passed away in the middle of filming it. Because I believe that there was supposed to be like a narrator in the movie, and they had to cut that stuff out. And like, there was, you know. yeah, there was a complete different character that was. Um, so there's a, um, oh, what he's called the Skull Cowboy, um, and yeah, he's he's in he's basically in there for exposition. So he's in there to sort of explain a little bit about what's happening, but I think they replaced a lot of that with Sarah's um, like monologue and that kind of thing at the start where she explains about, you know, sometimes when a, somebody dies and there's unfinished business, a crow brings them back and all that, that rubbish. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's an editing choice that was very 90s music video and just does not hold up for yeah. a feature film. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, it bugs uh, me whenever they cut to like slow motion for like no reason. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh there's a spoof um sort of horror uh comedy thing uh series called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place uh which is fairly obscure even in the UK but it's got a load of people that have turned up in like Mighty Boosh and, and stuff like that um but it's it's basically like it's it's supposed to be like a really badly written um Stephen King type uh sci-fi horror series set in a hospital and there's loads of bits where it's cutaways to like the cast 
and people like that talking about it. And there's a bit where they they're talking about, um, yeah, we use a lot of slow motion to to save money. Um, basically, any time you it was when they needed to fill up time, they would make a scene slow motion. And uh, you know, sometimes there, there was one see one episode that in the thirty minutes uh, up to nine minutes of it were in slow motion. So perhaps that was a kind of thing to fill out the time. <laughs> and it, it's it's weird, um, very sort of jerky ninety slow mo where it's almost like freeze frames as well that they use in it, particularly um, right at the end where um, Sarah's in the graveyard going up to the crow to get the uh, the ring. Um, it's doing this sort of like almost stop-start slow motion thing that's really, really weird. I'm not sure what the budget was for this film. Again, I'm guessing it was a little bit on the lower end based on how all of the songs were re-recorded instead of using the originals. But that also would speak to a lower budget of we're going to take this shot that we already filmed at a normal frame rate and slow it down versus purposely (laughs) filming it at like a different frame rate to use for slow motion so yeah (laughs) it speaks to like what you just said with the spoof thing of like oh we need to fill a little bit of time let's just slow this shot down and it's it wasn't it wasn't shot for that at the right frame rate (laughs) i i don't know about the re-recordings being for um budgetary reasons because they they could have you know they, they could have afforded to have New Order on there if New Order had the time. It was just that mm-hmm. they didn't have the time to re-record an old Joy Division song. Yeah, I don't mean the covers. I mean the other songs by the actual bands. They re a lot of them. They re-recorded their own music and changed the title. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, no that that one will be because the original version of uh, Darkness of Greed, which is the the full title of it, so it was just changed to Darkness. Was that it was their demo? So um, it would have sounded really, really thin next to all the rest of it. So that's why they they would have re-recorded it. Um, I've listened to to both versions and they're they're great, but it would be, you know, it was recorded before they were signed in a demo studio rather Mm -hmm. than a proper Epic Recordings um, budget um, studio. It it was the um, B-side to uh, Killing in the Net which I think I don't think was released as a single with B-sides outside of Europe. I think it was just U- uh, the UK and Europe that had that on there. Um, and also, uh, Zach Delaroche's pre-Rage Against the Machine band, uh, Inside Out, used the lyrics on one of their songs as well, but it was, it's totally different musically. But yeah, I, I absolutely love Darkness. It's uh, the sort of uh, fretless um, jazz bass type stuff on there. It's great. Mm-hmm. yeah there are a few other songs too that like were re-recorded and so like i totally get that if it's like an earlier version or you're changing like band members or something it was just it happened on so many of these songs that was like a little bit suspicious to me but maybe i'm totally wrong i work again i work in advertising i work in licensing so that's just the first thing that like pings to yeah. me is- <laughs> well, front temple pilots had to re-record or they had to give a different song because they had re-recorded a song called only dying Yes. Because Brandon Lee died during production, they realized that would be in poor taste. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. why they got the big empty anyways, which actually like really blew up on this soundtrack. It's a mu- big empty is a much better song than Only Dying as well, because they, they put out um Only Dying they they put out on the um deluxe version of their debut record um a few I think it was probably about ten years ago now. Um and I've listened to it 
just after listening to to Big Empty, and it's not good. <laughs> I mean, I, I, Stone Temple Pilots, I'm not the biggest fan of, but the their second record, Purple, which is the one that Big Empty is on. So this this was uh, it was written for. I don't know if it was written for the crow, but it, it was one that they went, okay, we can't use only dying. Let's put this one out. It hadn't, they hadn't released the second album yet. So it was right. still exclusive to this for a while and then got put on the new album. Yeah, I think the timeline was they released this on the soundtrack and then they recorded an unplugged episode where they also played it. Yeah. And I really liked the unplugged version. Cause like you can really hear the musicianship. Yeah. They yeah. still kind of have that like first album, like, sort of like chorus distortion on yes. the chorus. So I kind of like it more stripped down. But yeah, I'm with you. Like, I'm not a huge Stone Tumble Pilots fan, but I'm like, oh, this is actually a really good song. Like, I like this song from them. It kind of stopped um, people complaining about them as just sounding like Pearl Jam karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, any, anybody that, that um, does describe themselves as a, a really big Stone Temple Pilots fan probably should be treated with suspicion. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard that, but I absolutely love that uh, Pearl Jam karaoke. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, so that's the only Stunt Temple Pilot song that I like. And then on the second Crow soundtrack, Jurassicals is like the only filter song that I like. Oh, Hey Man, Nice Shot's good. But other than that, and um, the, uh, oh, what's the filter track um, on? The Spawn soundtrack, that's really good. Oh, yeah, that's also good. I only like filter on soundtracks. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can dig that. The, um, yeah, uh, Crow City of Angels, terrible film, but is really good soundtrack. It's got, um, there's like Gold Dust Woman by Hole is absolutely brilliant Fleetwood Mac cover. Yeah. Uh, You've got uh, I'm Your Boogeyman by White Zombie. Uh, Bush doing... Uh, Bush's turn to do the Joy Division cover on this one because they do in a lonely place. Um, Deftones Teething, which was on Adrenaline, and there's a uh, there's a band called Pet, who are absolutely amazing, but no one in the universe has heard of them. Uh, they're actually uh, they were signed to Tori Amos's record label, and they were the only band on that label. And wow. it was a band formed by Tyler Bates, um, who does absolutely loads of soundtracks now. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, Tyler Bates and Lisa Papino, I think it's pronounced. Um, and I mean, Tyler Bates these days, he's done like um, Sucker Punch and uh, 300 and uh, yeah. the Halloween remakes and stuff like that. I think he did. Did he do the Watchmen soundtrack for the uh, score? Mm-hmm. I think he was involved yeah, in that. Sounds about right. Yeah, I definitely know for three hundred because I know, and I said on another podcast, I think that everyone was like super pissed because the Nine Inch Nails song wasn't on that soundtrack and it like yeah. wasn't with the score, and everyone's like, "This is a bait and switch. Who is this Tyler Bates person?" <laughs> but like, it's still an amazing <laughs> soundtrack. It just wasn't what people were looking for. <laughs> but yeah, he also did Watchmen. He did Watchmen yeah. the movie. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, Pet are amazing. They they uh, they only had one album, uh, and it is definitely worth checking out because it's one of my favourite albums of of the nineties. It's sort of uh, sort of riot girly type uh, indie rock. 
Um, and yeah, if it, you know, if you, if you dig stuff like Hole and Bikini Kill and stuff like that, it's definitely, but a bit more melodic, it is definitely worth listening to. Did you know that Sunny Day Real Estate was asked to record a song for the City of Angels soundtrack? No, but it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so, so they recorded a song. They didn't accept it for whatever reason. They passed on it. So, Sunny Day Real Estate um, renamed the song to "Bucket of Chicken." Right, and they released it as a B side. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know what the original sound, song title was, but I don't think you can beat Bucket of Chicken, so <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I also am all for a Bucket of Chicken. Uh, <laughs> that'd be great. Uh, I, also, uh, Rollins' band uh, Ghost Rider on the Crow soundtrack is is brilliant. Uh, it's the first time I'd heard um, anything by Suicide, so obviously it was a, a cover of their track. But it's it's weird because obviously um, it keep, it keeps the main sort of melody and lyrics and structure, but suicide it's played on synthesizers, um, but he's played at a totally different tempo. Uh, Rollins Band has sort of really slowed it down, so it's grooving, and uh, they've got like loads of wah guitar, like you know wah pedals drenched um, on all the guitars. And uh, it's been that's the song that's been stuck in my head all week uh, for this one. And it's a reference to a Marvel superhero. It is, but um, Henry Rollins uh, does not care about the uh, Marvel superhero at all. He got asked about it, and he was like, "No, I just wanted to cover a Suicide song. Uh, don't really know about that guy. Uh, isn't he quite angry?" <laughs> <laughs> and then ironically is used uh for a different comic book you know like hero anti-hero yeah. <laughs> like the crow so it's all kinds of like a mix up there <laughs> there's a lot of similarities though between uh the crow and ghost rider because it's a, a very dark um revenge sort of based mm-hmm. superhero isn't it yeah also the punisher a little bit too yeah yeah. Uh, I, I think the main difference between uh, Ghost Rider and the Punisher and the Crow is that the Crow is a lot less, you know, liked by right wing assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's a little bit more on the obscure side, you know, like Ghost Rider and um, Punisher have had like more mainstream moments. I'm not saying successful yeah. mainstream moments, but have definitely been. <laughs> public more i would say <laughs> yeah i can't get over a guy with makeup on that's probably what it is yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's the main difference <laughs> now that i'm thinking about it i'm like yeah no they didn't the for all of the remakes that i've seen they've kind of kept it pretty normal for the wardrobe for the other ones <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean ghost rider is a skull with flames but He's not really wearing makeup, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it, if he was, it would have melted along with his face. Right. Right. <laughs> I've not mentioned yet that my life with the Thrill Kill Cult uh, are basically diet ministry uh, yet. That needs mentioning. <laughs> like, uh, have you got ministry? No. Will my life with the Thrill Kill Cult do? Oh, I suppose so. Uh, <laughs> it's it's all it's fine, but it's not as good as ministry. 
And uh, yeah, they, I guess they've opened for ministry. Yeah, and they've toured with ministry. Yeah, yeah. You you can tell from the sound absolutely that they're very much the um, Psalm sixty nine era ministry is their biggest influence at that point, definitely. But it's some of the guitars sound really thin on it compared to uh, actual ministry. And uh, what do you guys think of um, the Jane Soberry track? The last, uh, it can't rain all the time, the final track on there. What do Don't I have think some Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like, I think the verses are okay. Then I really like the bridge where it's leading up to the chorus and it's, it's sort of building. And then it's like she trips over and completely stacks it for the chorus because she's singing in a key that she cannot sing in. It's like she completely missed, she's just slightly too flat on all of the notes in it, and it completely ruins the song. So, yeah, I always skip that one. Well, I don't need to skip it, it's the last track on the album. Uh, just <laughs> listen to the Medicine <laughs> yep. and Cocteau Twins track and end it there. Uh, yep. on, on, on vinyl, it, it, the, the vinyl version I've got is there's three sides, and then the last side's etched, and it's basically the first record is the one that goes on. I don't always go as far as side C because uh, that's just my life with a thrill kill cult, Jesus and Mary Chain, uh, Medicine and Jane Cyberry. So it's the uh, definitely the lesser tracks on there. Yeah, it's a very front-loaded soundtrack. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of, I mean, you guys might not see it as unusual because you're a bit more soundtrack um, oriented than me. But I always had this impression that you've got loads of... It, it's the whole uh, music from and inspired by thing where you get loads of tracks on soundtracks that aren't in the film. Every single one on this soundtrack is used in the film, um, which I perceived as unusual. I'm not sure if it necessarily is, but I definitely had loads of soundtrack albums with stuff that wasn't in the film anywhere and was just sort of... Let's put these extra tracks on to try and get people to buy it. Yeah, the 90s is definitely guilty of the inspired by, let's just yeah. pump this soundtrack full of songs that we just want to sell records. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's not weird to me because I'm not saying it's great, but I mean, I get it. It makes sense, right? It's logical. Like you need to flush out the soundtrack with a few more tracks. You want to put some people on there that will make people buy it. It's all inspired by money. That makes sense to me. What's weird to me is when you have clear parts of songs in the movie that are then not on the soundtrack, which again is money. It's like, yo, you can't like further license it to be on the soundtrack. I was, it's just yeah, weird. I was going to say it's licensing, isn't it, that one? Yeah. Again, it's always it always comes down to money, but it's like that's weirder to me because for me it's like, oh, well, if there's a song that's inspired by and it's on there, you know, bonus, right, as long as it fits with like yeah. the theme. But then when you have a whole song that's in a film and you're like, oh, I really like the song, love how it's used – it should be on the soundtrack. Like <laughs> that's yeah. what's like to me. Yeah, I can dig that definitely. Um, the the thing with inspired by, I always find it really funny if there's a song like the, you've got a, a soundtrack album that's got some songs from years before the film came out, and they're like, "Yes, this is inspired by it." Are you sure they got a time machine, <laughs> or are you talking utter bollocks? <laughs> It's called, we have 74 minutes that we can fill, so we're going to fill it. 
so Absolutely, people buy yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, I know that this is the most popular version of the film, and it's the most it's the most popular version of the soundtrack, obviously. Yeah. But you can only find this soundtrack album on Spotify. You can't find the other. Yes. The, the, like you can't find the sequels, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think that money. It, yeah. Basically that they've not stayed in the public consciousness enough for them to bother licensing those extra tracks. Um, like on city of angels, there's, there's various tracks on there. So someone's made a playlist on Spotify, but there's loads of stuff missing like corn um, um, Sean Olson, which was the B side to no place to hide. Um, that isn't on Spotify, so that that's not on there. Which is a shame because it's actually one of Corn's better songs. Because a lot of their, well, I say their early stuff because I've only listened to their. I I was a big Corn fan for the first three records, and I re-listened to them a couple of years ago, and maybe about ten fifteen percent of it holds up, and the rest of it is just <laughs> like, why was I listening to this shite? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one of those like genres like corn and similar bands where another one of those things were like at the time very popular. Everyone listened to it, myself included. But now looking back, I was like, wow, this is this is not the same as you know Nine Inch Nails having a moment in the '90s and totally holds up. Like, <laughs> well, there, there, there's some that do. I mean, surprisingly, Limp Biscuit. Um, a lot of uh, the first Limp Biscuit album, uh, Three Dollar Bill, you is actually really good. <laughs> and it's, it's it's fun to listen to. Mm. Um, there's there's maybe sort of one or two really, really bad tracks on there. But but Corn, it's like the, the bad tracks definitely outnumber the good tracks. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a weird time for music when it was like pre-Lumberjack Rock. We had like Bob Smack <laughs> and like all of those bands were like hugely popular, hugely mainstream. And then we all just kind of woke up and we're like, oh man, no. <laughs> Does the jungle yeah. scatting still hold up? I, oh, uh, the, on, yeah, on, on corn. Uh, it's, it's sort of, it's part of the character of the songs. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't expect anyone else to do it. Um, but Freak on the Leash is is one of the songs that's still quite good, and you know that that still gets, you know, the the few times I've been to to rock clubs recently, that still gets played. So well, I say recently, I mean in like the last decade. <laughs> but um, yeah, that that tends to still get played, and I think that that holds up a bit. But um, yeah, some of the other songs, not so much. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's the only song like when they were at their height where I like understood why people liked Corn. Oh, but Blind is amazing. Um, first track off their first album is it's a completely new sound, and uh, listening to it, there, there was you know you'd got um, there were elements of new metal that had come about before, like you know Rage Against the Machine were not a new metal band, but they were like. A predecessor, Faith No More. We're not a new metal band, but they're a predecessor. But then Corn is where it sort of coalesced into this new thing, and it completely blew our minds at the time. Which is why you know when it was on the second Crow soundtrack, um, Sean Olsen was you know one of the tracks that we sort of gravitated towards more. But they, they, this is pre-new metal at this point because uh, the first Crow record, uh, first Crow 
movie was 1994, which was the same year that the first Corn record came out. So this is this is earlier than the new metal stuff, which is why you got nothing on there um, that fits in with that. Pantera, the badge is the the closest one. That's a, a Poison Idea cover, so that's pretty much straight hardcore. Um, right. The uh, you the sample at the start from another movie as well. It's from uh, Taxi Driver. That little sample at the start of of uh, the badge, which is the exact same sample that uh, Poison Idea used. So they've done it as a really straight cover. Um, yeah, they're the only band on the uh, Crow soundtrack that I've actually sung live with because uh, I got the uh, years ago at a Pantera gig. Uh, I got a, I was right in the front row and got a microphone thrown at me, so sang the second half of Walk. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so now that's that great. Awesome. That's a great story. Uh, And thankfully, uh, Phil Anselmo wasn't being a racist Nazi arsehole at that gig. That was later. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, going back to The Cure, um, with it being my absolute favourite Cure song, it's sort of like a sequel to um, The Hanging Garden because there's um, lyrical references in there uh, in... um, the Hanging Garden, it says, in the heat of the night, the animals scream. And then the chorus of that says, like, scream, the animals scream. Um, but you've also got... Um, there's elements of disintegration in there as well, which is one of my other favourite Cure songs, because you've got this... Um, there's an effect in there that's like a pattern tremolo. So it's... Um, you've got the, the guitars and keyboards are played through a... Um, it's like a noise gate, which for people that don't know what that is, it basically it cuts the sound off and opens the sound up. So it's sort of like a stop-start kind of sound where it's going from silent to the full guitar sound. Um, and it's like a pattern version of that. So there's like a rhythm to it rather than it just being straight, same um, note length for everything. Try and simplify that for non-guitar nerds, and hopefully that makes sense. But if not, sorry. Uh, but yeah, they they use they use that on disintegration as well. Um, although it's really subtle, um, it's a bit less subtle on on burn. Um, there's also when when you look at sort of um, you've got various like websites like Song Facts and stuff, and they all tell you that the Cure have never played Burn live. Uh, which was true until November 2013. And since then, they've played it 108 times, and I've seen them do it twice. Uh, and it was amazing both times. Wow. And you, you know when it's going to happen, because uh, you see Robert Smith get his... Uh, he's got a little penny whistle that he plays the sort of weird seagully type noises at the start. <laughs> <laughs> wow, to have a song sitting on the shelf for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, right. it, they, there they, must be a story behind that. Well, um, I believe what had happened is it wasn't written with a full band. It was just uh, Robert Smith and the drummer, uh, Boris Williams. And then Boris Williams left the band not long after it was recorded. Um, so none of the rest of the band obviously knew how to play it, so wouldn't have brought up, why don't we do this one or anything like that. Um, and Robert Smith had apparently forgotten 
how the song went until somebody reminded him was like no you should really do that live it's amazing and they um they played it for the first time at a, a festival somewhere in um in 2013 and uh it went down really well so they've played it loads since then seems to get played a lot outdoors because the they, both times i've seen them do it it was uh, hyde park in london and then they did a, a gig in glasgow um the year before the pandemic um and yeah both times were brilliant i'll see if they do it again in uh, december when i see them uh at birmingham nec <laughs> oh fun yeah i actually haven't seen the cure yet i, I think they're on my list oh they're amazing i actually got engaged to my wife during a uh, cure gig at hammersmith apollo uh, oh wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> so now we know why it's your favorite band <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they were my favourite band before that. <laughs> yeah, but that's like the extra 15%. Well, that's why he proposed during his favourite band set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they can't be surpassed now, right? Like, well, not has yeah, the no. sentimental value. They, they can't be surpassed because they wrote Disintegration in 1989, which is the greatest <laughs> album of all time. Uh, and then they wrote Burn in 1994, which is a better song than anything on there. So, uh, yeah. They basically can't be surpassed because they're amazing, but Nine Inch Nails and Mogwai are pretty much up there. (laughs) Well, thanks, Colin, for coming on the podcast. Anytime. I've enjoyed that. That was fun. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I also want to call out, I totally misspoke earlier. I said Pitchfork, I don't even know why. I meant Kerrang, and then you said Kerrang after, and I was like, Ah, I meant Kerrang. I did think that, and I was thinking, Pitchfork's American, but I'm not going to say that. Yeah, no, it is. I don't know why that came into my head. Yeah, I was like, I didn't know Pitchfork made physical copies. No, I, exclamation point after Kerrang, it looks like a Pitchfork. I don't know. My brain's broken. But then you said it, and I was like, that's what I meant. I had the physical copies, like stacks and stacks of Kerrang. I suppose if you hit somebody with a Pitchfork, it might make a sound like Kerrang, possibly. Oh, that's good. Nice. Thank you for making my brain make sense. That's all right, anytime. (laughs) Uh, you can check out free with this month's issue on all podcast platforms they do an episode every month we do and uh, (laughs) we dig music as well which is our other podcast where we uh sort of at the moment it's a a different year each month and we choose 10 songs from it and then fight over which of those songs are the best and uh it's usually one of mine because obviously i choose the best music (laughs) <laughs> we dig music is uh on twitter at we dig music pcast and i believe it is on instagram as you can tell i'm just looking this up on my phone at the moment because i have no memory whatsoever uh we dig music pcast on instagram as well wow some consistency that doesn't normally happen <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works out. <laughs> yeah, uh, but they're, they're all on um, our website, which is wedigpodcasts.com as well. So both podcasts can be found on there. Or, like you said, wherever you get podcasts, because people are listening to a podcast at the moment, so they know how to find them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, and if you want to support our podcast, you can find us on Instagram at Soundtrackcast and on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your. And if you'd like to... 
financially support us, buymeacoffee.com slash soundtrackcast, or you can give us a review on whatever platform you're using, and we'd really appreciate it. Thank you again, Colin. This was a lot of fun, and we should do it again. Thanks for having me. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.